everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, Naomi, and I am also a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and I'm Ian Rowe. And today we are excited to be joined by Chris Sinicola. He's the Director of Communications at the Pioneer Institute in Massachusetts. And he is also the co-editor of a new book that we want to talk about today called Restoring the City on a Hill, U.S. History and Civics in America's School. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks so much, Naomi. I'm pleased to be here. So we wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, first I wanted to ask you about the title, City on a Hill. Um, it's uh, actually it was the name of a, of a charter school that was founded in Massachusetts a long time ago, one of the first charter schools in the country. Um, but obviously the phrase City on a Hill has a much uh, older connotation. We want to talk about, let me ask you first why you chose that uh, as the title for the book. Yeah, that's a great question, Naomi. And uh, we had more than a bit of debate, I would say. Um, in our offices as we were looking to title the book, because as you correctly note, uh, City on the Hill is really biblical in its its uh, resonances and was um, a, a phrase that was uh, used by John Winthrop when the uh, pilgrims were setting off from England way back in 1630. And um, the intent, I think over time, that phrase, American exceptionalism, and a number of scholars have looked at that and said, oh, that's all wrong. That's really not what they were talking about. The pilgrims were setting out just for themselves for religious freedom. And I've done a fair bit of reading about early New England and the pilgrims. And I have to say that um, when they talked about religious liberty, they meant for them. <laughs> and they didn't necessarily mean for anyone else. If you were a Quaker or you were uh, a Protestant, uh, not a Protestant, but a Catholic, um, or someone who didn't toe the line, well, you were invited to go someplace else. So, uh, but over time, it's fair to say, I think, that that phrase, City on the Hill, has come to be thought of as a beacon of hope. And we use the image of the Massachusetts State House, which is high on Beacon Hill. So that's what we settled on. And I think when I look at that and think about it, I think too about what Winthrop said and the rest of that phrase where the eyes of all the people are upon us. So the idea that he was trying to get at was that if you mess this up, folks, everybody's going to know it. And in a sense, that makes sense for education, because Massachusetts has always been um, a leader in education in one respect or another. And if we don't get it right, well, we set a terrible example. And a lot of other states will look and say, well, that's where Harvard started, and that's where common schools started, and they're not getting it right. So what hope is there for the rest of the country? You know, we don't want to tell them how to live their lives, but we do want to bear a good example, right, for others, so... That's where we that's where we came down on the on the title and the image. And so that's where your book comes in. Are we getting it right in K-12 education? Sometimes we are. That's the, the good news. Um, oh, let's start there. Where are yeah. we getting it right? Ian so loves I, good news. Oh, that's good. That's good to hear. <laughs> so I look at the education landscape and um, I come from a, a background. You know, I, I had a lot of great schools. I was privileged to go to a prep school. Uh, for high school and went on to college. And so I've had a lot of advantages. And um, my wife and I taught four kids, uh, 30 years of combined homeschooling with some uh, Catholic school and some private schools, some choice high schools, some charter public schools and vocational schools. So we've had a little taste of pretty much every flavor of education there is. And um, in my former days as a reporter, I covered a great number of education stories. Um, so I look at that landscape and I say, there's a lot going right when it comes to choice and freedom and parents asserting themselves these days and saying, you know, our children 
who you know come to us you know we we are have these uh, lives entrusted uh, to us for a few precious years and if you don't get it right uh, you're going to you're going to lose out you're setting them up for failure later in life so um i look at that landscape and how it has changed dramatically in the last 10 20 even 30 years homeschooling has grown enormously micro schools have grown school choice charters in massachusetts have grown unfortunately they're now capped so i think the momentum if you will is there for a great uh, a great future because parents are fed up and we talk in the end of the book which i know we're anticipating a bit but the final chapter about this coalition um, that I think is growing of parents who have had enough of the public schools that just aren't uh, up to the standards they want and aren't willing to wait any longer. So they're taking direct action. So that's the good news. There are, of course, good stories to be told in many public schools across the country. Generally, it must be said, those uh, in the wealthier zip codes where they have lots of advantages and uh, the parents have lots of resources for enrichment and so forth. The Less good news, of course, and I use the example of uh, Jonathan Kozel's book, Death at an Early Age, um, you know, classic account of his year teaching um, a fourth grade class in Boston in the inner city in the 1960s. And at the end of that book, there's an interesting letter from the lawyer for the district, which concludes saying that it is hoped that Mr. Kozel will develop his latent talents and concomitantly develop an understanding and respect for the value of working within the acceptable codes of behavior. And so I read that and I think, have our founding fathers and mothers adhered to the acceptable codes of behavior, I'm not convinced that we would be an independent country today. So what Kozel was trying to get at and what so many other educators and reformers um, throughout our history have tried to get at is that you need to shake things up a bit and you need to change and challenge the status quo. And unfortunately that doesn't happen in my view nearly enough in most public schools today. Got it. And now, uh, one of the things that I think really spurred the the whole creation of the book was that you were doing research and looking at just how much knowledge do our kids really know? So tell us a little bit about that and the manifestation of saying we should put pen to paper and come up with a set of solutions to address this issue. Sure. Well, and did you do the... some Jay Leno man on the street interviews to find out <laughs> how little our students know, unfortunately? Well, we did something like that. Pioneer commissioned Emerson polling to do a survey of 400, I believe it was 400 Massachusetts residents. And we based the survey questions directly on the U.S. citizenship exam. Yeah. And you may know that um, in order to become a citizen, uh, you know, aspiring Americans need to get a 60 percent or higher. And generally, they do very, very well. Uh, I know a young one who recently applied and got her citizenship and scored a perfect score on that citizenship exam. Now, unfortunately, the folks who responded to our poll averaged 63%. So if you're in the mood for more good news, Ian, that's a passing score, but not yeah. by very much. Right. Um, and there were some disturbing results in there. So that qualified as our man on the street portion of the uh, the study, if you will. I mean, what's interesting, some people would say, well, oh, I, I would think that number would have been 20%. So was this 400 randomly selected adult? Yeah, they, they selected them to be representative, you know, demographically in terms of age and political affiliation and so forth. So it's very scientifically done with the usual margin of error. 
but I think it's probably a fair reflection. Um, in fact, I, I brought home the questions and asked uh, my wife and son, and they got a couple of them wrong. And then they quickly corrected themselves. They said, oh, yes, I know that senators is six years. And I know that there are 100 senators, not 50. I was thinking of the number of states. I'm like, I'm going to give you a pass on that, but uh, <laughs> you know, because they're yeah. family, right? Yeah. Uh, so there were, you know, these questions are not terribly difficult questions for those who are well-versed in history and have studied and so forth. And certainly, I think, for highly motivated uh, folks who are seeking to become new Americans, they find it not terribly difficult. And that's the good news. Um, mm -hmm. It betrays, of course, a deeper ignorance of some of the principles of the country. Um, if you don't know some of the basic things, like you can't name even one branch of government, we hear that quite often in polls where you know, organizations will go out there. And you also see lots of stuff on, on social media, you know, in the late night talk shows have a great time with this. But the serious part of that is what is it doing in our schools? What do people really know? What do young people know? And there has been a move, and we talk about this in the early chapters of the book, about what happened to U.S. history instruction over time. And some of that is an emphasis on modern U.S. history at the expense of the early years, because after all, it's exciting to talk about World War II and Vietnam and Watergate, 9-11, and, and you know, on and on. And that's what's on our minds most recently. Um, and a lot of people, you know, we're saturated in the media and in social media with such topics and themes constantly. And it's just sometimes less interesting to go back and learn about, you know, John Hancock and John Adams and Jefferson and Lincoln. But all that matters greatly because young people need to understand what it is that made this country so different and so unique in the annals of, of the world history, really, as well as the problems that we had. Um, you know, there's no sugarcoating the fact that U.S. history is littered with mistakes and missteps and injustices. And those are part of the story that need to be told. And um, no one is advocating that we, or I hope no one's advocating that we paper those over or cover them up. Um, but you do have to understand something of how the country started and what drew people to this uh, nation and why they continue to come here. And that's then would you say the the decline uh, in teaching U.S. history really started? I mean, mm -hmm. I, you know, I have to say it's it's interesting what you're saying about the focus on more modern topics, because if I think back to sort of my American history education I felt like we sort of never made it past the middle of the 20th century. Um, there was, you know, it was, it was, everything was about the American Revolution or the Civil War or something like that. And then we sort of, you know, got lost somewhere in the Great Depression and that was the end of it. And I think a lot of people sort of never understood the cause of the Vietnam War or, you know, even frankly, some of World War II. So I'm curious when you think the emphasis, the re-emphasis happened and how much of it is, you know, just sort of, uh, you know, driven by a sense that this is what kids will enjoy studying and teachers will enjoy teaching and how much of it has a more um, kind of ideological agenda behind that switch? Yeah, that's a great question and a hard one for me because um, I'm not a classroom teacher and it's been some time since um, I was devising curricula for my own kids or seeing what they were learning in school. Um, but thinking back to my own experience, um, and that may not be terribly representative because, uh, you know, I started in the local elementary public school and thinking back to those days, to the extent that we did cover history, it was pretty solid stuff. You know, you would have uh, you would have Lincoln's birthday and Washington's birthday. There was no President's Day. We celebrated both. 
and we would do all kinds of projects and you'd learn about history. And I had the, you know, golden book of the American civil war. Some of them are still on the shelf behind me. And so I really enjoyed history and read a great deal. And as you explained, Naomi, in your own experience, you did get pretty much a sequential, you know, tour of U.S. history. And then the school year would run out and, you know, spring fever would set in and you might get up to maybe World War One, World War Two, and then that was it. Um, so unless in later grades you took on a specialized course, you might never get to some of that material, whether it's the earlier or the middle or the later periods of U.S. history. Um, but there are other factors going on. And I think some critics and scholars would say that the decline, if you want to call it that, began with the progressive era, with you know, Woodrow Wilson and and those who wanted to socially engineer the society. Um, well, I obviously wasn't around in those days. I've read about that era, of course. I think they made some missteps, certainly. But there have been some enormously, um, you know, tremendous historians since then. Um, you know, people like David Hackett Fisher and um, Samuel Elliott Morrison, uh, who have written remarkable books of history and have examined and explained trends throughout the years. And some of that work filtered in to the curriculum in K-12 and in college, um, if only indirectly. Um, you might look, too, at the 1960s, at the rise of some of the, uh, you know, left-wing, left-leaning or left-wing historians, uh, folks like Howard Zinn and others who mm -hmm. came in, uh, you know, wanting, wanting to give a different viewpoint and there were some good reasons to do so, obviously. Um, I think the argument that a lot of folks have or the, the difficulty they have with that approach, and certainly I think I share this, is that Howard Zinn and his ilk, you will, may have a lot to say that is of value and needs to be considered, but it's very difficult for young people who don't understand the origin story to know what it is that they're talking about and why the criticism is important to consider. It, I think, requires that you be older, more mature, and have perspective. It's hard to know the whole story if you don't know where the story began. You kind of come in in the middle of the stream, as it were. Well, that's why I find one of the recommendations um, that you put forth, because, you know, Howard Zinn, you know, generally textbooks, those are not necessarily a reading of history. It's a reading of someone's interpretation of history. And so one of your recommendations going forward is how can primary documents become more the focal point? So when you talk about that in terms of how we can actually have kids actually understand what was being grappled with at the time through the words of the people grappling at the time. Mm -hmm. Right. It's an excellent point. I We talk in the book, uh, for example, we'll pick on the Federalist Papers, which I recently, you know, night after night and read through. It's a long book. It's 500 and almost 600 pages. And I was struck as I read through them, and I'd read some of the highlights before in history courses and then, you know, doing a column here or there over the years, but I'd never read the entire book cover to cover. And I was struck by just how, how difficult it is and how challenging it is. And that is true, not only the Federalist Papers, it's true of the U.S. Constitution, which is argued vociferously at the Supreme Court every single year. It's true of the Declaration of Independence. It's true of um, any of the early documents in American history, because at the distance of what, nearly 300 years or more, if you go back to colonial history in early New England, we're talking 400 years, um, language changes and what the meaning of words changes and 
sensibilities change. Um, and we don't really appreciate, even as adults, how different we are today from those who came before us. Um, and certainly kids don't have that perspective. So if we are to use these primary sources in schools, which I think we should do, we need to have guides. And those are the teachers. They need to be highly competent, highly versed in this. They need to understand it so they can represent it to the kids in ways that make sense. Um, do you have evidence that um, teacher knowledge of U.S. history is is far superior than that of the average American? I do not. Ian, do you have evidence to the contrary? <laughs> oh, I wish that were true, Ian. That, uh, you know, I, leading question, yes. Yeah, it's a leading question, yes. <laughs> Fair enough, but... Uh, um, I want to sort of ask you about kind of how the the rollout of all of this is going, um, you know, how the reception has been and, you know, kind of what your plan is. I mean, obviously, I think we, you know, there there seems to be general agreement that civics is important. I think you, you know, you see articles every couple of years from people who want a big push in that direction, um, you know, and different people mean different things by, you know, just like, you know, people who say like, like we we need to more to get people to understand democracy, and often they have a whole um, agenda <laughs> underlying that. But I think there is broad agreement about civics. But what is it going to take to sort of get people, right. you know, off their rear ends to kind of actually do something about it? And what are what do you think are the biggest obstacles at this point? Wow, that is a great question. Um, it's my 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 opportunity here to solve the civics crisis in America. Yeah. Um, as, as to the book's rollout, which is the most immediate way that we're beginning to have impact, um, we have had, I think, uh, 18 or so radio interviews and two or three podcasts, uh, you know, national stuff, the Heritage Foundation is one example of that, uh, and a number of op-eds that we've been able to place in places like the Miami Herald and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, big papers, plus a bunch of smaller papers around the country. So, we get our reports and we might see that we've shown up in a small paper in Iowa or Ohio or um, some other place in the country. Um, we've also had the opportunity to speak to a lot of, uh, I would say, right of center, uh, you know, talk show hosts who have big audiences and kind of want to grab you and draw you into other controversies you might not necessarily have signed up for. So I'm a little leery of that because I don't think there are any really uh, glib pat answers in in these matters. I think it's a lot of hard work and it's a question of restoring an understanding that history is good for us and it's important to know. Um, I think probably both of you recall things like Multiplication Rock and I'm Just a Bill on Capitol Hill and those other ditties that, <laughs> you know, back in the day. Mm -hmm. And they seemed silly in some ways, but they also were remarkably effective in, in many ways. So those kinds of... Um, maybe subversive uh, campaigns to get kids familiar. Um, I think we need more of that. And, you know, we, we do in the book uh, talk about video game civics and we give it kind of, we kind of dismiss it. And I think there's a, there's a brand of that that can be just superficial and not helpful. But when you look at the resources that are available online and, uh, you know, learning um, language apps and other things like that, there are just, a wealth of things out there that, that kids can and should use. And my wife teaches Latin and her students use a number of games, which are very effective in getting them to learn grammar and history and so forth. They really enjoy it. And it's a good adjunct to a kind of the 
the, the drier material that you have to learn. Um, yeah. So the rollout's gone pretty well. Um, and having that impact, it's really hard to measure because you don't know who's listening and what they might take away from it. But you hope that they are listening, certainly. So one thing that, you know, I started running public charter schools in New York uh, in 2010. And that was the year, you may know this, that New York State decided to eliminate the social studies exam at the end of the year I, uh, in elementary school. And I think even at the end of uh, eighth grade. And what was extraordinary to observe is that over time, that there became such a focus on testing for ELA or English language arts and math in a sort of content agnostic perspective. There was more of a push to populate, especially elementary school curricula with more time for literacy and reading. So social studies, which may have been a class that occurred five times a week, 45 minutes per class, suddenly shifted to maybe two or only one time per week. So I wonder, because I noticed that wasn't an area of big recommendation, but what role do you think it plays in states um, in end of year expectations around specific knowledge of historical content that the state says, you know, must be mastered in some way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there have been changes, uh, and you correctly point this out, in what we call the study of history broadly, right? Sometimes it was history, and then it was a shift to call it social studies. I remember when I was in school, don't hold me to what year it was, but we suddenly it was social studies, it wasn't history. And then later on in high school and in college, it was suddenly back to history, and social studies was that thing we did back in middle school that no one really understood, um, and it seemed less focused on content, certainly, um, than just straight-up history. Um, so that we do touch on the book a little bit, that that was a shift that was palpable and not necessarily a good shift. But you also identify a real problem in terms of testing. And, and I look at the testing in, in two lights. Um, early in the book, we note that one of the warning signs of the decline of civics and history knowledge can be seen in like the NEEP scores and um, probably SATs and other scores, MCAS scores in Massachusetts and other places, although we don't test um, history directly in, in Massachusetts and MCAS. But if right. you look at any other state or any other measure, those scores go down and and people say, well, that that means that kids don't know as much history. And that's probably true. But the question is, what do you do with that knowledge? Um, there seems to be, among those who follow this, a lot of hand-wringing over test scores, as if test scores were in and of themselves a thing. Well, test scores are just a measure of children's performance at one point in time. And kids, especially in middle school, have a lot going on in their lives. So I tend to look at it that it's an opportunity, a diagnostic, yes, just as MCAS is a diagnostic, and we'd like the state to test history as well. But we don't want to invest too much emotion and fear into the declining test scores. Rather, we want to focus on improving the curriculum and time on task. Um, and some of that erosion of time on task is probably because there's a lot of testing going on. So it's kind right. of 22. You know, you don't know what quite what to do. Naomi, you mentioned earlier, you know, that sense that you weren't going to get through the whole book. You were only going to get up to the Coolidge administration. Uh, <laughs> and I just read about the Coolidge administration. It was a fascinating book. Um, but <laughs> if that's as far as you got, you missed a lot of the story, of course. You want to, you want to hear more. Um, so we need to we need to improve our curriculum. Uh, everywhere. 
and we give in the book, uh, one of the chapters is devoted to states that have done it well, at least in the past, and then the move towards Common Core, which we think was not a great move. Um, but ironically, over time, as as we think about Common Core, as I think more and more about this topic, I think if only they did teach Common Core, if they if they at least taught that much, even if it's not great, if it's kind of sort of bland, vanilla, here it is, and it's not terribly in-depth, but it does cover quite a bit. Um, and I had the same reaction when I looked um, more deeply just before we went to press, you know, we're doing our final checks on the book and started looking at the AP uh, history curriculum and what it contained. And the paper that we based that chapter on was an early draft. It looked at an early draft of the AP U.S. history, which was improved quite a, quite a bit after the public comment period. So there is the possibility, there's that hope that, you know, if parents and teachers stand up and say, oh, this isn't good enough, we have to improve, that they can affect change. They can do that at the state level and they can do that at the local level particularly. Well, we encourage uh, all of our listeners to go out and do that, of course. Um, thank you so much, uh, Chris, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. And we encourage everybody to go check out the book, City on a Hill. Um, and as I said, you know, definitely try to change things at the local level. Um, this has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? You can get episodes of this podcast on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. So with that, I am Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Thank you, Chris. Thank you so much both.